The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. Today, Sean Korsgaard talks with Alexander McCree, game designer and author and creator of Star Spangled Squadron. The graphic novel is Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron, and it started life as a crowdfunded graphic novel, and we're excited to be distributing it here at Bain Books. Sean and Alex talk about the origins of the game and the book, the crowdfunding campaign, and more in just a moment. But first, the news. July is just around the corner. If you're looking for a great beach read this summer, or a great anywhere read for that matter, we've got the books for you. Let's check out the July mass market paperbacks. First up is The Icarus Plot by Timothy Zahn. There wasn't much money to be made as a trailblazer, searching out new worlds for possible development. Still, it was safer than the bounty hunter career that had cost Gregory Rourke his left arm six years ago. And thanks to his Cadolian partner, Celine's ultra-sensitive sense of smell, they occasionally discovered a medically promising seed or spore they could sell under the table. It was a quiet life, uneventful and mostly legal, until Rourke was approached by two men with a proposal. Track down a mysterious woman named Tara, and through her, locate a secret project called Icarus. The challenge was intriguing. The unlimited budget was tempting. But Rourke had a more personal reason to accept the job. The chance for long-delayed payback. Next up, we have Trouble Walked In by Mike Coopery. Cassandra Blake, an employee of the Ascension Planetary Holdings Group, the largest and most powerful corporation in Nova Columbia, has gone missing. And her sister wants to know why. When questions need answering on Nova Columbia, Detective Ezekiel Easy Novak is the man most folks turn to. But what begins as a routine missing person case quickly turns into something much bigger and more sinister, with implications that could affect the entire planet. It seems Cassandra wasn't just investigating her employer. She had uncovered a secret effort to excavate and exploit an ancient alien artifact known only as the Seraph. Soon, Easy finds himself trying to unravel conspiracy that may implicate not only Ascension, but the highest echelons of the Terran Confederation itself. And last but not least, we have the anthology Robo Soldiers. Thank you for your servos, edited by Stephen Lawson. Robo Soldiers. They take many forms, from disembodied AI to human-like androids and more. But at their cores beat the cybernetic hearts of warriors. In these stories of hard military SF, you will journey to the battlefields of tomorrow with the veterans who have been there and the researchers developing the next phase of battle and get a glimpse into the future of warfare. That's the Icarus plot, Trouble Walked In, and Robo Soldiers. Thank you for your servos. All available this July in mass market paperback. And that's it for the news. Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the latest episode of the Bain Free Radio Hour. I am here with Alex McCreese, one of the founding fathers of The Escapist, game designer, and for our, for our purposes, 
the author and creator of Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron, the cross-media game and graphic novel. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour, Alex. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Excited to be here. Now, for all of our listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to snag that graphic novel yet, and for all of our listeners and viewers, you should. It's on our website. Grab it at your leisure. Tell us a bit about the graphic novel. What is Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron? What inspired it? And what's it about? Sure. So Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron is a graphic novel that tells the origin story of the Ascendant universe. The premise is that it's set in the real world, in the present day, um, and that superheroes have suddenly begun to emerge. And unlike a lot of other superhero comics, which have assumed that superheroes have always been with us, or they emerged in World War II, or they pretend that society has never heard of superheroes when superheroes first emerged. In Ascended, it's literally our universe. So when superheroes start to emerge, people are totally familiar with the concept because Marvel movies and DC and so on. And so you get this um, sort of interaction between what people expect they're supposed to do now that they've gotten superheroes, uh, superpowers, and how they actually behave. And the US government uh, sort of freaks out because now you have humans of mass destruction running around the country. And so they decide it's gonna to be too scary for the American people if they create a military force of ascendance to deal with the problem. So they create a paramilitary force and they purposefully dress them up in silly costumes with silly code names because then the American public will be really chill about it because, oh, it's not secret police that can kill us with our mind. It's American Eagle, the hero that we love and who has his own comic book. And so uh, the graphic novel is the origin story of how the Star Spangled Squadron comes to be and what their first mission is. So before we dive into some of what inspired that and some of the interesting things that make that graphic novel tick, let's get into what makes you tick. Like, I know I first heard of you close to a decade ago from your work as one of the founders of The Escapist. Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure, sure. So I started The Escapist. I was the founder in 2005. Um, the premise was we wanted to create a sort of a rolling stone for gamers. You know, Rolling Stone in the 60s had kind of transformed rock and roll uh, into something that was perceived as an art form where people wanted to be rock and roll musicians and it was not quite respectable, but admirable. And likewise, we wanted uh, the escapist to take gaming and make it like a cultural phenomenon that people acknowledged was really important and relevant and wasn't just games for kids, which is really how things were still treated in 2005. Um, it became a tremendous success. We won six Webby Awards. Um, we built a whole roster of um, video stars. We were one of the very first gaming websites to really embrace video as a central focus with Yahtzee Croshaw in particular and Zero Punctuation becoming a really popular show. And, um, and it, it grew like gangbusters and ultimately got acquired by a Los Angeles company called Defy Media. And then I became senior vice president for games and men's content at Defy Media. Uh, and I did that until 2016. So a good 11-year run as uh, head of the Escapist. An incredible run. I mean, some of the people you worked with, you already mentioned the wonderfully verbose and talented Yahtzee Croshaw, uh, Lisa Boyles, Critical Miss. You really had a fun roster of web personalities for a long time with the Escapist. What was it like getting to work with them? Well, they're all super talented, super fun people. 
Um, we, you know, we used to meet up at conferences and conventions. We had an escapist expo where we'd all get together. And, um, you know, it was a really, really fun, uh, it was a really fun period. The, there were certainly a lot of stresses because um, the 2008 uh, dot com, uh, 2008 recession, and then um, the changing ad market really hit us a few times. And we had some serious financial struggles uh, circa 2008 to 2011. Um, so it could be very, very stressful, but it was overall really fun. It, it, became a lot less fun when gaming and game journalism became heavily politicized. And, um, and you know, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people got frustrated and upset during that era and it kind of took some of the joy out of it. I mean, when hasn't politics being thrown into pop culture made things for the worse? But, exactly. I mean, the other thing is that The Escapist was in an era where so many of those longtime outlets sort of started to blend together. Game, everything from Cheat CC to Game Inform. You managed an outlet that had its own identity, its own voice, and a few Bostonians aside, one of the best rosters of editorial voices anywhere on YouTube. That's no small feat. Well, thanks. That's really kind of you to say. We definitely tried to have our own uh, unique voice um, you know, our initial approach was we did no game reviews, we did no product reviews, and we did no daily news. It was every article had to be able to stand on its own as a feature article. And we eventually had to move away from that due to some of the changing economics of the space. But that really strong editorial voice, I think, stayed with us, um, you know, through the full run. And of course, the media landscape has changed, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on perspective. Yahtzee Croshaw still out there happily doing his thing though. And I guess as someone who rode the wave for close to a decade, what's your impression of the scene now? Well, things have changed a lot and not necessarily for the better. Um, when in 2005, when someone wanted to learn about a game, you know, they would go to game journalists and they would um, uh, read about a game review, or they'd follow the news to get updates from their favorite developer or things like that. But over time, and in 2005, a lot of game companies still thought of themselves as, as boxed goods companies, right? Like they shipped a game out to GameStop. They were, they were product companies. You know, you fast forward today, and if a gamer wants to know what a game is like, he just watches his favorite Twitch streamer play it on Twitch live, or he tries a demo for himself. He can purchase a demo or a game on, on Steam. Um, you know, he can get the news about gaming from social media or Discord or trusted sources such as that. And he just doesn't need traditional game journalism in the same way. And so those forces drove traditional game journalism to become more and more political as a way to stay relevant. So if you couldn't satisfy an audience by letting them know which games to buy, you could at least find an audience by letting them know which games it was moral to buy, if that makes sense. And um, the problem that enthusiast press faced in making that transition is that it sort of runs counter to enthusiasm. And so you got this divide between gamers and game journalists and the content that was being produced. And because those sites had so much authority within the space, um, it was a really big issue. I think all of that's kind of faded away into the background now because you know, today's gamer doesn't have the relationship with IGN that they did in 2005 or with a Kotaku or something like that. They're just much less relevant than they used to be. I say as someone who spent 
little over a decade as a reporter before joining Bain. It is a wildly balkanized landscape in terms of journalism, not just in gaming, but in general. But yeah. I guess from somebody who was on the front lines of it for so long, are there any outlets or reporters you like today? Oh, I like uh, Bounding into Comics. Um, some of the other you know, uh, some of the other niche sites really. But I primarily have transitioned to using social media. You know, I'm, I'm highly active on Twitter. I get a lot of my news via links there. I'm highly active on Substack. Um, highly active on Discord, and that's really where I get my content now, and where I where I release most of my content. Brave new world. Well, new there world. is one last thing about gaming that. Of course, working in science fiction and fantasy publishing, I have to be the selfish guy to ask, what do we do, have to do to get gamers to pick up more books? You know, it's funny. I was just having this discussion last night with my wife, and one of the things we, we were talking about is how the vast majority of books that you can buy in the science fiction and fantasy genre nowadays on, say, Kindle Unlimited or Amazon are largely written by women for women, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a huge audience and those people are making a lot of money and producing really great books. But if you're a guy who wants to read about a Conan type individual doing manly things in the old way, or um, a war movie with a band, a war story with a band of brothers, uh, authors like that are in really short supply. I mean, it's basically the Bane roster, the end. And, um, and so I think Bain has very cleverly found that niche for itself. Um, and how does one grow that? I mean, you know, obviously it's hard because there's so much competition for attention and, and we have that problem with graphic novels. We have that problem with role-playing games. Everybody has always got something else they could be doing with their time. That's very hard. I think that's probably why we've seen a lot of the biggest success has been in crossovers where people establish a franchise and then they have that franchise in different media. So they have, you know, which is what I've done with Ascendant. We have the Ascendant RPG. We have the Ascendant graphic novel series. We have the Ascendant community online. So I suppose the way to get people to read more books would be to get some games out there or YouTube shows out there related to big books. Um, and then the people that get invested in those will want to read the books to get the full story. Do any game designers or YouTubers out there that would like to talk to us? Our phones and emails are open, but you thought of the next thing we'd like to talk about, though, RPGs, because you transitioned into game design. Tell us a little bit about the early step. What made you go into that field? And what was some of the first stuff you worked on? Sure, sure. So, well, I actually went into game design before I went into game journalism. Um, when I was in college, I was part of the West Point War Games Club. And so we used to play war games and role-playing games really regularly uh, with a team of army cadets. Um, and then from that, I graduated into war game design and I, I designed a game called Modern Spearhead, which was a uh, you know, Cold War, Cold War micro-armor warfare. And, the, and my game design actually got me into Harvard Law School because they were very impressed with the fact that I could think so clearly about rules, et cetera, et cetera, and thought, oh, this guy will be a good lawyer. So, um, then I kind of put that aside for many years because I was an entrepreneur. In 2011, my wife became ill and um, I had to kind of change my lifestyle a little bit and be in the house more and had just a lot of quiet time because she was sick, but she needed me around. 
she was like, you know, honey, you really love role-playing games. You've spent all this time creating them. You run them for your friends. Have you ever thought about kind of compiling it all together and, and, and releasing them? And I had the time and I was stuck at home. So I just started working on it. And I fortunately, um, that moment in my life coincided with the rise of crowdfunding. And so I was able to crowdfund my first game, Adventure Conqueror King System. And so that was the first game I had designed since college. So it had been, like, you know, let's see, a 13 year gap. Um, but Adventure Conquer King System found an audience. And so then I did another book the next year. And so since then, I've done one or two books on uh, per year um, and have, have built up sort of a repertoire of, of role playing games, a collection. I sell them on Drive Through RPG after I kickstart them. It's one thing that's made you very popular among our main authors, many of whom are, if not from that tabletop RPG world, devoted purchasers of that tabletop RPG world. I guess just for all of our listeners and viewers who might also want to partake, what are some of the favorite, some of your favorite games you've worked on? Where should some of our gamers among our readers start with your work? Sure. So I have two major uh, product lines, uh, Adventure Conquer King System and Ascendant. Adventure Conquer King System is a take on classic Dungeons and Dragons that emphasizes um, the transition from wandering adventurer to king in the tradition of Conan going from barbarian to ruler of Aquilonia, or Aragorn going from wandering ranger to ruler of the reunited Gondor and Arnor. Uh, it's that, you know, Theseus going from wandering adventurer to king. Like this is a traditional trope that we see in mythology and fantasy literature, and it's largely been unexplored by the RPG space. So Axe, Adventure Conquer King System, has all of these rules to support domain play, mass combat, pitched battles, sieges, spell research, all of these things that let you play at a grand scale. So that's been my most popular game. And, um, and I'm working on a sequel to it called Adventure Conqueror King System Imperial Imprint or Axe 2. That's gonna be crowdfunding next month um, or maybe August, just depending uh, how far along I get in my writing. But within the next 60 days or so, that's gonna launch. The other product I have is the Ascendant Universe, um, which started with the Ascendant RPG. Um, the Ascendant RPG is very interesting because it's built on logarithmic math, so it uh, enables you to handle anything from human scale up to cosmic scale um, with a single die roll for any given action. Uh, it's very, very elegant. It's probably my best designed game in a purely theoretical sense. And I've just, um, I've just crowdfunded the first sequel to the Ascendant RPG, the first source book, and that's called uh, Ascendant Rogues Gallery. Um, that'll be releasing in PDF um, probably within a month. Uh, and then from there, it'll be a sequel to Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron will be the next project in that product. And I will definitely want to pick your brain about that in a bit. But to talk about Ascendant, what inspired you to create a superhero tabletop RPG? It's not the first time it's been done, but it's still very uncommon. So what drove you to create the Ascendant universe? Well, I wanted to create a multi franchise for basically the reason we talked about earlier, right? Um, you know, role-playing games have a niche, but it's a niche and it's hard to get outside of that niche. And graphic novels have a niche, and movies have a niche, etc. And so I, I started to do some research. Well, what, what makes for the best basis to build, um, you know, a multimedia franchise? And I discovered that percentage-wise, graphic novels get turned into Netflix shows or movies um, uh, at a vastly higher percentage than ordinary television shows or, uh, or uh, ordinary novels or books. 
Um, it's, it's, you know, so many shows that we watch on TV are based on obscure graphic novels that, you know, only the true aficionados have even heard of. So I thought, okay, this is, this is a space. Um, and then I decided if I was going to do a graphic novel, I wanted to do something in the superhero genre because I felt like the current creators of superhero genres had betrayed the space rather than actually tell us stories of heroes that we would inspire and admire. Um, instead, they had turned towards subverting customer expectations and ridiculing, belittling the heroes or changing them into unrecognizable forms. And I thought to myself, you know, there has to be an audience of people that wants old school superheroes. And you can see the cover of Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron. We literally have a, a dude in red, white, and blue carrying an American flag. Um, and then, a, and a, a, you know, and a hot blonde chick flying next to him. Like, you know, we're not, we're not sort of trying to disguise what the product offering here is. So, um, yeah, so that was, the, that was the driving force. And then having decided to create this multimedia franchise, I started with an RPG, because that's the area I'm most familiar. And I happen to have this really core insight into how, how to do a logarithmic RPG that kind of drove the mechanics. And it's been very fun because the comic book is actually based on the actions from the game. Um, and the game produces comic book-like activity when you play it. And so they, they mesh really well together. And every panel in the comic book, you can sit there and say, oh, I understand how this happened in the game, which is, which is kind of a fun, uh, sort of delightful thing for, for, for a nerd who's deeply invested in both areas. So before we really sink our teeth, or given the characters and Ascendant, our claws into the comic, for people who want to give the RPG a whirl, what do they need? Uh, source book, dice, any equipment like that? You can buy the book on Drive Through RPG uh, or on my website, ontarcomporium.com. Um, all you really need is the core rules, and you need uh, two 10-sided dice, so a, a so-called D100. That's it. Now, if you want more, you can purchase the Game Master screen, the Capital City Gazetteer, the Adventures, etc. But you can get started with just the book. Marvelous. Now, let's get into the meat and potatoes, the graphic novel. All right. The first volume of Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron, which available on Bane.com and hopefully everywhere fine graphic novels are sold, Ask your local only fine. Do what? The only fine graphic novels. And fine graphic novels. This first arc, you introduce a lot of characters. As you say, a lot of them are archetypes of those classic American comic book characters that you have your patriotic stand-in, your... I, I guess your dark brooding slash bondage type, your, you know, spawn, lady spawn almost. Right, sure. Were there any inspirations for each of these characters and what went into designing each one and selecting them for the sure, sure. to introduce this universe? Yeah. So going back to the earlier point, remember that the premise here is that the United States government has purposefully assembled this superhero team, um, partly for its actual military and police utility, but partly as a propaganda effort to make the American public calm down about superheroes. And so I thought to myself, if I were a US government official in the year 2018, which is when this happens in the storyline, creating a superhero team, what would I do? 
And so I laughingly realized that what they would try and do is have a diverse group of team members that covered all of the niches that they'd want to market to. And so the team is exactly three men and exactly three women. It's exactly one sixth black because that's the percentage in, of the country. It's exactly one sixth uh, Latino, has an Asian member. Um, and so it, it, it's a little bit, it's diverse with all these different archetypes because the US government in world has specifically gone out and recruiter, recruited heroes that are diverse within all these different archetypes. Um, which Justice is a little League bit of by, the Justice League by government focus group. So exactly, that's exactly correct. All right, so then the characters themselves, we have American Eagle, um, and American Eagle is obviously based on great heroes like Superman. Um, the big plot twist for American Eagle is that there's no plot twist. American Eagle is actually just a decent human being who loves his family, worships God, and wants to help the world be a better place, loves his country, loves his team. Um, and so, there's very few characters out there like that anymore. So just to be clear, there will be no plot twist where he's secretly a member of your Hydra equivalent, just for shock value. Yeah, that's exactly the sort of thing I'm rebelling against. I hate stuff like that. Um, so that's so. So American Eagle is one of the two, one of the three viewpoint characters in the comic. Um, the second viewpoint character is Stiletto, and Stiletto is representing um, like the late 1990s bad girl comics uh, of that era. Um, and so she was a dominatrix whose uh, latent, ascent, latent powers um, manifested uh, while she was in a, a very bad situation being tortured by a drug dealer. And so her powers are all related to the sort of weird complex of pain and beauty that was going on when that happened to her. The premise of the, the, premise of the way the superpowers manifest is that the, whatever you experience and who you are at the moment that your superpowers manifest is how the powers developed. So American Eagle's powers developed when he was a firefighter saving children. And so he has the powers of like invulnerability and super strength so he can hold up the roof and protect the kids. Um, so then uh, the third major character is Aurora, who was an Instagram influencer and wannabe reality TV star. And her whole goal in life was she wanted to be a star. And so when her superpowers developed, she became a light controller. <laughs> glow like a star. Um, and so she's your, she's sort of both kind of like a comp comedic figure as well as, you know, eye candy, fan service, whatever you want to call it. And we have Warp, who's the teleporter. He was an extreme sports star who, um, you know, jumped off, a, jumped off a building, parachute didn't open, really didn't want to be there anymore. And then he wasn't there anymore and developed teleportation powers. Uh, Stronghold is your basic uh, bruiser type, you know, similar to the Thing or Hulk, very, very strong, good-natured guy, doesn't like bullies. Um, and then finally, there's Dr. Quantum, who is uh, a super genius with the ability to manipulate quantum reality, and so she can create force constructs and things like that. Um, and so she's, uh, you know, she's your representative of kind of like a Professor X meets Green Lantern vibe. I mean, at least reading the comic, one thing I definitely liked about the team is, as you just broke down, not only do you have that different power set, but each character is sort of representative of a different era of comics. You've got the patriotic superhero from the early golden age, like Captain America or Superman. You've got the brooding 90s edgy character, like the Crow or Spawn. You've got the fun fan service -y character, like you'd see in the Bronze Age, like Plastic Man. 
you got a little you got a little something for every era of comic heroing. So you brought them together on one team. That's right. And that was deliberate. Um, you know, and it was deliberate sort of both immoral as well as, you know, sort of diegetically deliberate by the US government. And then it was delivered by me as a as a content creator because I loved all those eras. In fact, I mean, I loved every era of comic books except basically the current era that we live in. Um, and so I wanted to have, you know, characters from every era. And also part of it is that the world we live in today is just that, right? Like, it's like you mentioned earlier, everything is balkanized, everything is niches, everything is subcultures. And so if you're representing that, the way you represent it is by having, you know, there's no longer one hero that represents all of America. Um, there's all these different um, subcultural heroes that represent different aspects of it. You know, and obviously American Eagle comes closest to being the hero that represents all of America, but you could easily imagine a lot of Americans, you know, who might watch MSNBC might say, well, American Eagle doesn't represent me at all, you know, ooh. Um, but maybe there's another character that does. So that was, that was the thinking that was going on there. Now, the other thing I do like is that the threats they face, you don't have, again, comic books have this wonderful variety of what kind of enemies they face. You have the mad scientists from the early golden age to the league of supervillains you see teaming up in the 70s to space aliens. You went another route. It's government conspiracies and terrorist groups, which again is very pulled straight from the headlines, modern day plus superheroes, which I quite like. Yeah, so a large portion of the background of the game, which you can find uh, you know, uh, in, in the first part of the rule book, um, is actually taken straight out of CIA declassified documents on actual programs that the US government made to try and create superhuman individuals. Um, and to the point that some of the some of the leaked documents that I offer are almost word for word actual US government documents with just minor changes. And um, and so the 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 backstory, which you very quickly learn in, in the opening of the book, is that the US government has created this program called Project Ascension, where they're using this um, special technology to try and augment human beings. Um, the, the technology isn't um, uh, isn't working very well, so they've begun to experiment on prisoners because they figure let's try it out on, on military prisoners until we can get it to work. They accidentally get it to work a little too well on one of the military prisoners who then becomes this very powerful threat called Manticore. Um, and then we fast forward to several years later where they now they're on Guantanamo Bay, they've got a whole facility, they've got operatives working for them, including um, Maximilian Danix, Joel, Helen Song, and Manticore's sort of being kept in deep freeze, and things all go wrong when their own heroes turn against them. And then those heroes later become uh, the terrorists, the sort of ascendant supremacist terrorists um, that drive the plot forward later in the book. Now, without revealing too much about the first book, you're, work, you're plowing out and working on the second. Where can we expect things to go from here? So unlike billion dollar franchises like Star Wars, I actually took the time to write my whole storyline in advance and, and work out all of the answers. Um, so I have a, 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 a literal five-year storyline um, already written with you know, all of the, the, the secrets that are going to be revealed. Um, so I'm not making it up as I go along, in other words. And so some threads that are put in place in book one, you know, will show up and finally be understood in book three. So um, 
you know, book one ends with, um, you know, the introduction of the team to the world. So uh, in book two, it carries forward as um, the world begins to adjust to the existence of both superheroes and supervillains. Um, now, one of the major plot points is um, a, uh, their trouble in dealing with an ascendant uh, who's capable of um, controlling all digital data. And so is therefore exposing the US government secrets and how do you handle that? Um, there's another uh, aspect where they get involved in disaster relief, trying to um, help victims in Haiti after a major earthquake in book two. And woven into that is the fact that, um, that people who undergo terrible crisis nowadays have a small percentage chance of developing superpowers. It's called ascension. And so when you have like a major earthquake that you know, kills 200,000 people in Haiti, some percentage of those people ascend and become superheroes. And so like not only you're doing disaster relief, you have people that have randomly become human torches or you know, unkillable berserkers or whatever. And that becomes a recruitment ground for the super terrorists as well as uh, additional complexities for the superheroes trying to do the disaster relief. And that's in fact why the terrorists commit super terrorism because every time they do so, they create more superheroes or supervillains and they want to ascend humanity. Which, added bonus, gives the villains an actual motivation beyond simply being evil. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. The villains don't perceive themselves as evil. They have very clear reasons for why they're doing what they're doing. And they think, they think they're on the side of good and kind of ridicule the heroes for being on the side of stupid. Now, are there any plans to do solo titles with some of these characters or spinoffs or anything like that? Absolutely. I would love to do solo titles and spinoffs. Um, uh, it's just been a matter of how much can I do step by step, you know, it's, uh, it's just me, um, a, a small art team that um, is based uh, out in the Philippines, uh, and then an investor that helped me put, the, put together the first comic book. So I think as we prove out the model, we'll grow out the universe, but that's definitely a major goal is to, to grow that out, have titles, recurring issues, etc. Now, naturally, on the Bane side of things, I do have to wonder, what made you come to Bane with this graphic novel? Well, I have a number of friends that are Bane authors, and they've spoken really, really well of their relationship with Bane. Um, and it also it goes back to the point we talked about earlier, which is that Bane is one of the few publishers that's actively publishing content aimed at the sort of audiences I want to reach, which is, you know, traditional male readers of um, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Um, military. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't, I don't begrudge any author for chasing any audience they want to. Like, you know, you want to write fantasy romance and appeal to 20-year-old women or 40-year-old women, go for it. I love it. My wife loves those. It's great. It's just not what I wanted to write. Um, and so uh, Bane just seemed like a really natural fit. And then when I talked to you guys, you know, I could see why all my friends were like, yeah, they're great because you were great. So it was great. We're all great here. How are you? Now, between Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron and the first volume of Black Tide Rising, an adaptation of one of our graphic novels, Baines started stepping in, into this wide world of graphic novels, and at least as a casual observer and longtime comic reader, we've seen this explosion on the indie side of things, maybe the biggest golden age of independent comic creators since the 1980s, when we had everything from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to The Crow really coming out of the woodwork. Now we have 
in addition to yourself and Black Tide Rising. We've got Eric D. July and his whole Ripperverse. We've got war comics from Alex DeCampi. We've got, of course, Ethan Van Skyver and Cyberfrog. And hell, we have Sylvester Stallone and Keanu Reeves getting involved with comic creation. Which, anytime you have Keanu and Sly working on something, that just gets me excited. What, yeah. what is it about this age of independent comic creators that's caused this golden age, this boom, and... What are some great places to start? And was it just a matter of the big two stumbling and crowdfunding stepping up, or is there something else to it? Yeah, I think it's a confluence of factors. So the big two stumbled badly, and uh, or from their perspective, the big two made a strategic change in audience and focus away from traditional comic publishing, however you want to spin it, created a market opportunity. Um, crowdfunding created a way for independent creators to actually get the resources they needed to create the comics. Um, technological advances have made it less expensive to make comics. So for instance, lettering doesn't have to be by hand anymore. You can now use, you know, do digital lettering, things like that. Um, social media made it possible for independent creators to market themselves in a way that hadn't been possible before. And then finally, um, the distribution channels changed. It used to be that uh, if you wanted to buy comics, you had to go to a comic book store um, and it was hard to get into those comic book stores and you had to have give very, very steep discounts and have relationships. And that's changed now with things like Comixology or Amazon to where you can get your Arcaven um, or Webtoons where you can get your comic out there into the world. A lot easier. So those five factors together makes it possible for um, uh, for indies to thrive. I think in a way they haven't in the past. Among the vastness of this new indie comic scene, do you have any favorites other than Present Company, of course? I'm a big fan of what Chuck Dixon has been doing. So um, I really like his writing in um, the. Uh, uh, the Shade series he's doing. Um, Chuck Dixon's Conan has been really good. You know, he's the creator of the Punisher and Bane. I mean, he's a, you know, obviously a heavy hitter in the comic space. And to see him really thriving as an independent has been has been kind of cool and inspiring. So I would say I'm I'm kind of a, a Chuck Dixon fanboy right now. Oh, so are we. He worked on Black Todd Rising with us. So that was exciting. Amen. Yep. And at least from some hearing you talk about Conan, you're a sword and sorcery fan too, I take it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can see it in the name of the game of the King system, which is straight out of the Ace Lance paperback series from the 70s, you know, Conan the Adventurer, Conan the Conqueror, etc. Then I have to ask, have you been reading some of our fantasy titles from this summer? From this summer? No. Which ones, uh, which ones have you published? Well, we will have to send you a few copies then, but the big three I'd have to recommend at the moment are Rhymer by Gregory Frost, Lord of the Shattered Land by Howard Andrew Jones, and Wraithbound by Tim Akers. And I can say at least two of, the, two of those three are also big game designers, so y'all have a lot to bond over, in addition to well, fantasy RP, you know, fantasy sword and sorcery types. But to get back to the comic, though, I guess, the other thing is... From a publishing perspective, for the first time in decades, DC and Marvel aren't the biggest comic publisher in the U.S. 
Scholastic is. Then you've got all of these Japanese comic companies really filling in the gap and rather selfishly taking up what used to be the sci-fi fantasy book space. And then... Uh, we'll We'll take it back. But as an indie comic creator, what are some things that on the publishing side of things, our fans, readers, and I guess other publishers should be aware of with this wonderful opportunity with all these independent comics. Gosh, I mean, if I had that all figured out, I would be happy to share it, but it's still, you know, this is my first graphic novel, so it's still very much a learning exercise for me. Um, I do think there's probably a lot of lessons we could learn by looking at how manga has been so successful. Um, in terms of how they, you know, they build their franchises online and then they market them, um, you know, in, in, in consolidated volumes. They make it really easy to get into. You just, you know, you don't have to sit around and think about, wait, is this Spider-Man in the multiverse seven or is this the alternative special edition Spider-Man? Like, it's just really easy. You pick up no punch, a one punch man and you're like, okay, this is one punch man. I'm watching it. Um, so I think there's, a, uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from manga and that's, more or less, I think if American American indie comic books should be aiming to kind of take up some of that market space um, rather than pursuing the models that the uh, the big two have painted them into, painted themselves into with their you know for a long time their chief advantage was that they were had that distribution into the comic book stores and they had the ability to produce the comics uh, in real time you know week by week and that's just much less valuable now when you can do fragments of a comic online on a webtoons or arcade and type site. Um, and then you can smack them all together into a graphic novel. But I caveat that I don't fully know the answer yet. I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, it's one we're happy to explore moving forward. And of course, I have just have to ask, having heard you talk about your own comic, classic comics, and what are some of your favorites that have been put out decades past. Like, you a Superman fan, Captain America, Aquaman even? <laughs> <laughs> so my first comic was Green Lantern with Hal Jordan. Um, my father had been a Green Lantern fan, and so he bought me my first Green Lantern comic when I was about eight years old. Um, so I, had, I have a huge, huge collection of Green Lantern comics. Um, and you see that love for Green Lantern show up in the character of Dr. Quantum in Star Spangled Squadron. Um, I liked a bunch of the late 1990s bad girl comics. Um, my friend David Campetti did a comic series called Jade Warriors, um, which was somewhat inspirational in the character of Stiletto. I really liked the Man of Steel limited series of Superman, which I have. Um, and that obviously was inspirational for American Eagle. Um, I really liked Frank Miller's Batman Begins and Dark Knight Returns. Um, and in general, Frank Miller is one of my favorite comic creators. So I have a bunch of his stuff. Um, I like the Watchmen uh, and the, you know, the Watchmen sort of um, deconstruction followed by reconstruction of the comic genre was inspirational for me in Star Spangled Squadron. So um, I would say that those, like, those are probably my big, my big four. Now, the other thing we talked about before the episode was you've got a couple projects upcoming, a few Indiegogos you'll be launching. For all of our viewers and listeners, tell us about those and where they should keep an eyes, their eyes peeled for. Definitely. So the next big project for me is the Adventure Conqueror King System Imperial Imprint. 
um, which is the sequel to Axe. And I guess for those of you who are hardcore gamers, you could understand it is Axe is OD&D and Axe 2 is AD&D. So rather than being, you know, a slender booklet, it's going to be three hardbound rule books similar to the old Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and Monster Manual that Gary Gagax produced. Definitely the largest project I've ever worked on. It's 1,200 pages of content total. Um, so uh, a behemoth effort. It's also the first product I'm releasing that's not under Wizards of the Coast open game license. So I, uh, there was a big issue with that earlier this year where Wizards of the Coast tried to take away the open game license from third-party creators. So I said, screw that. I removed every D&Dism from the game and I'm, I'm pursuing now an independent license called Orc. Um, so that'll be coming in either late July or early August, depending on how the cards kind of play out. Um, then it will be followed by the Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron graphic novel, uh, of which we've got the first 20 pages done. Um, so there's about 70 more pages to, uh, to illustrate on that. Um, that's coming along really well. It's good fun. Uh, and then shipping soon are two other products that I've already crowdfunded, which is the Ascendant Rogues Gallery, which is the first source book for the game. Um, and then Buy This Axe, which is a um, uh, source book for Axe uh, with a hilarious name, which is about playing dwarven characters. And I, I sort of randomly stumbled into the realization that everybody loves dwarves and their dwarven players were an underserved audience. And that actually turned out to be the largest Kickstarter I've ever done. And uh, it did so well, I was able to do my first ever um, hardcover leather. Uh, um, Beautiful. Yeah, and I have to say, I love the Call of the Conqueror reference. Thank you. Yes, as a huge sword and sorcery fan, as you can see, it's just a beautiful book on the inside and out, um, first ever. So I think we're going to do something like this format for um, Acts 2, where they'll be really nice collectible books. Now again, for with all of our viewers and listeners, maybe being introduced to you for the first time, no doubt you've made a wonderful impression. Where can they keep up with you and your work? Are you making any conventions appearance, convention appearances in the future or social media that these beautiful people at home should follow? Yeah, so my main social media is twitter.com slash archon. I've also got Facebook groups set up for um, Autark, which is my publishing company, um, and for uh, Adventure Conqueror King. I have a substack called arbiterofworlds.substack.com and a YouTube channel of the same name where I do content about game design and game mastering. Um, so those are all good places to uh, to catch up with me. So so my question for you is, when is Bane going to start publishing tabletop role-playing games? Because I need to get these beauties into bookstores. Well, it's funny you mention that, because I am not allowed to talk about certain plans that are in motion. But needless to say, I hope all of our folks at home are paying attention to Bane's social media over the next few months. Well, listen, if you guys start doing tabletop role-playing games and you don't include me, I'm going to be deeply offended and I'm going to post unhappy memes on Twitter, so. Oh, well, don't worry. We, we're very, uh, we're happy to work with those who work with us. But in the meantime, though, for all of our viewers and listeners, once more with feeling, tell them about Star Spangled Squadron and where they can pick it up. Well, you can get a, a Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron now, I, I hope, in bookstores, um, since Bane is now distributing it worldwide, and you can get it at bane.com. Um, I really hope you'll check it out. I think if you 
love traditional comics, if you, um, you know, love old fashioned storytelling and old fashioned values, and you don't want uh, your expectations subverted, um, then I think you'll really dig it. You know, our goal is to meet and exceed expectations, not subvert them. For all of our listeners and viewers, thank you for joining us today on the Bain Free Radio Hour. This has been Sean C.W. Korsgaard signing off. Keep reading. We'll see you next week. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. A half hour later, with a rumble of the big caterpillar engine and the rattle of chains, Oil can returned to the yard. He had his toe lights on and a small shrub stuck in the flatbed's ram prow. Tinker, he bellowed as he swung out of the cab, a crowbar in hand. Cuz, here am I. She came out into the yard, the dent mender in hand. Tinker and Oil can favored one another, which sometimes made Tinker wonder about her egg donor. She knew that her grandfather had selected her mother mostly on intelligence. He could be quite vocal about his scheme to raise a genius grandchild. But she wondered occasionally if he had also tried to make it so that she and Oil Can looked like brother and sister, too. Oil Can was just shy of average height for a man, slender built as she was, with the same nut-brown coloring. When they were little, Tulu had called them her wood sprites, Tinker always thought the overall effect worked better on oil can. He had a spry, puckish kind of look, what people used to think of as fey before they met the real elves. Oil can stopped at the sight of the blood on her, his dark eyes going wide and solemn with concern. Aw, oh, shit, Tinker. Are you okay? Fine, fine. Most of it isn't mine. Windwolf is chewed to hell. Someone cooked up a pack of monster dogs that... She stopped as implications finally seeped in. While created for a war waged millennia ago, the wargs now ranged wild, for all purposes a natural creature despite their magical enhancements. Simple bad luck could account for a warg attack. Windwolf's mauling, though, was clearly an attempt of premeditated murder. Someone had made the monster dogs, taking days to set up the original spell and then copy it onto the five pug dogs. Someone sicked a pack of killer dogs on Windwolf. Windwolf? Not the elf that marked you. That's bad, isn't it? Is he still alive? Barely. We have to make sure he stays that way. Johnny was here. He wouldn't do anything for him, and he says that Mercy won't touch him. The hell they won't. 
Not everyone is a self-serving bastard like Johnny. We can take him over and someone will take care of him. It's not like they're going to let him bleed to death in front of them, is it? For a moment, she thought she could let him take charge. Then she realized that he was waiting for her to say yes or no. The problem was that Oil Can knew she was smarter than he was. He had a lot going on upstairs, but he always deferred to her. She was never sure if it was because she'd played too many head games with him while they were growing up, or if it was some crippling fear of failure. He had been ten before falling into her grandfather's care and can-do style of child-raising, and it showed. He was four years her senior, but still he was more than willing for her to be the boss. Of course, that had drawbacks. I don't know. She retreated back to the workshop to check on Windwolf, finding him unchanged. Oil can trailed behind her, waiting for her to think of something. Certainly, if we can't think of anyone else to help with Windwolf, we can take him to Mercy. Can't hurt. Might help. Who the hell else is there? Tulu? She stays on Elf Home on shutdown. Let me think. Tinker bounced in place. Weird as it seemed, sometimes bouncing helped. Like her brain just needed to be jostled around so a good idea could surface to the top. Elf. Heal an elf. Elf healing. Elf biology. Xenobiologist. Lane. Oil can studied the setup around Windwolf. How are we going to move him? You need to take the power sink. And that's nearly 500 pounds there alone. I don't know if the two of us can move it. She considered the sink, the pale, battered elf, and all the blood. We'll just take the workshop trailer, load it onto the flatbed. You've got to be joking. That's how we got it here in the first place. Shit, but up to the observatory? And we don't know if she's even home. The phones are still out. She's usually home on shutdown day, Tinker said. She transmits data from her home computer. If she's not, well, we'll just drive on to Mercy Hospital. If they won't take him, I don't know. Maybe we'll drive out to Monroeville and see if we can find a vet. Monroeville? You mean drive to Earth? We are on Earth. We're in Pittsburgh, Oil Can said. Pittsburgh hasn't really been part of Earth for a long time. Yeah, we'll go to Earth if we have to. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Alexander McCree for sitting down with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.